We've all heard or seen pop science articles or brands claiming the superpowers of certain diets or foods for mental health. Can acai berries really prevent cancer? What about the magic of pro and prebiotics? What even is the gut microbiome and how on earth could it be influencing our mental health? How much of this is hype and how much of this is fact? In the last episode, we've talked about the growing field of nutritional psychiatry, including the history of the field, current evidence, controversies, and of course, misinformation. Today, in the second episode of the nutritional psychiatry series, we'll go back on some of these subjects we've already talked about, and we'll dive into how the gut and brain are connected, how different diet styles impact mental health, and much, much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ev, and I am your host for this season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. Today, I'm talking with Elena again. We've done quite a few episodes together already, but for our new listeners, can you briefly introduce yourself? Yes, hello everyone. I'm Elena and also a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's. My research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction and mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment. Elena, I heard you got the chance to speak with an expert on today's subject. Yeah, so I got the chance to chat with prominent researcher in the field and also alumni of the Queen's Center for Neuroscience Studies, Dr. Caroline Wallace, about her exciting research. So Caroline Wallace is now a postdoctoral fellow and part-time professor in the School of Nutrition Sciences and Institute for Mental Health Research at the University of Ottawa and the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre in Ottawa, Canada. She is a recipient of a Nutrition and Mental Health Fellowship, as well as an Ontario Women's Health Scholars Award. Her research program focuses on examining how diet and nutrition affect mental health outcomes through activity of the gut microbiota immune brain axis. Currently, she's investigating this relationship in the context of the perinatal period. Today, we'll take you through my exciting conversation within this episode and provide you with further explanations and commentary throughout. Lovely. I can't wait to hear about her field of research. Yeah, let's get into it. So first, I chatted with Dr. Wallace a bit about her background and why she decided to pursue research in nutritional psychiatry. Yeah, so before we get into it, could you explain a little bit about sort of how you got into this field? Have you always been interested in eating behavior and the impact on mental health? Interestingly, it's actually no surprise that I ended up in this field. In my later teenage years and into university, I always had an interest in both nutrition and mental health separately. I never thought that there would be an opportunity to combine them. That wasn't on my radar. But towards the end of my undergrad, I did my fourth year's honors thesis project with Dr. Alfonso Abizade in the neuroscience department at Carleton University. And I was studying the feeding hormone ghrelin in the mouse brain and how it affected depression and anxiety-like behaviors. So I was already kind of on my way there, but I then wanted to switch to something more applied for my master's. So I moved to Kingston to do my master's degree in the Center for Neuroscience Studies, just like you and your fellow (laughs) podcast hosts. Yep. 
And I was working with a fantastic supervisor, Dr. Ruman Malev, in both the Center for Neuroscience Studies and the Department of Psychiatry. And it was then that I started seeing in the media, of all places, articles about how probiotics could cure your depression and headlines like that. But when I was reading these articles, I realized that there really wasn't any scientific evidence behind these claims yet. And I was fascinated by this and I said, okay, I want to do this. I want to do the science behind this. So I pitched this project looking at the effects of probiotics on depression to Dr. Malev. And although he didn't have any background in gut-brain access research at that point, it really did align with his research program, examining novel treatments and biomarkers for depression. So that's where it kind of started. I started in the kind of clinical trial with single supplementation, and that really led me to looking at more kind of nutritional psychiatry as a whole in my career currently. That's so cool. Yeah, I love that it sort of started with like identifying misinformation out there. Definitely aligns a lot with our podcast goals. So it's really nice to hear. We actually just did an episode on like grad school and grad school journeys and how you should go into your project being like curious and passionate about the topic. So it sounds like that was definitely the case for you. It was awesome. So for our listeners, if you don't mind just explaining sort of like what is nutritional psychiatry and why are people sort of calling it an emerging field and is it really... So it's funny you say that. Nutritional psychiatry in itself is a rapidly growing field. I would not call it emerging anymore because at least anecdotally, concepts from nutritional psychiatry date back to hundreds of years ago. But I still catch myself saying emerging, but it's not emerging anymore. It's an established field. And again, it's a rapidly growing field. And what it is, is it's a field focused on developing a comprehensive and scientifically rigorous evidence base, examining the role of diet and nutrition in mental health and illness. So this includes, you know, the study of how dietary patterns and nutrition status may be used as clinical tools for both the prevention and treatment of mental health disorders, as well as for kind of the maintenance of optimal mental health status. And it's a really multidisciplinary field. So, you know, we're using tools and techniques and knowledge from the fields of psychology, neuroscience, microbiology, nutrition and dietetics, public health. So it's really kind of an all-encompassing field. It's a really neat field because, like Dr. Wallace mentioned, it's been around anecdotally for so long. We have all these stories of diet impacting mental health, kind of like what I talked about in our last episode when we touched on ancient medicine and just the familiar sense in all of us that when we eat well, we feel good. But even though the idea of diet impacting mood has been around for so long, it has yet to be fully incorporated into standard clinical care. I think developing a larger evidence base and useful nutritional tools out of this is so exciting. Yeah, for sure. And what's really neat to me about this field is just how multidisciplinary it is. You know, incorporating all these different aspects into the field of nutritional psychiatry really does give us a more comprehensive understanding or view of how our food intake affects our brain and I guess vice versa too. 
Totally. And a lot of people are asking now, okay, so we know we feel good when we eat well, but what is actually responsible for this relationship? And taking it one step further, could this be a focus of mental health care? So to get to this, I then asked Dr. Wallace about what really is lying at the basis of the relationship between diet and mental health care. And here's what she had to say. So really the relationship between diet and mental health all revolves around this biological network called the gut-brain axis. So the gut-brain axis is a bi-directional, could say multi-directional communication network between the brain and the gut. And this communication occurs via a number of bodily systems, including the autonomic nervous system, the enteric nervous system, the neuroendocrine system, the immune system. And it involves a number of key players. So while we haven't fully delineated all the pathways within the gut-brain axis, we know that there are key players like specific gut microbiota, inflammatory cells, inflammatory messengers, the vagus nerve, short-chain fatty acids, as well as neurotransmitters themselves. So really, more accurately, it should be called the gut microbiota immune brain axis, but that's a bit of a mouthful. So I'll be referring to it as the gut brain axis, but you'll know that there's a lot more going on there. Yeah. The gut brain access is so fascinating to me. Most of the projects that I have worked on had some form of metabolic component, at least to some extent, and this had direct impacts on the functions of the brain in general. And, you know, it makes sense. We've talked about how energetically demanding our brains are in our near-death episode, And the brain really does require so much energy and so many nutrients to function properly. And yes, here I'm talking about some pretty obvious components like glucose and fats, but also other molecules like creatine, like magnesium, like vitamin A. Just as an example and a little sidebar, a few years ago now, I was working on retinoic acid, which is a derivative of vitamin A and its role in the development of the brain. And it's known now that retinoic acid is regulated very strictly during development. An overexposure to it during fetal development is associated to a bunch of birth defects, which is why it's recommended that pregnant women who use Accutane or other acne medication that contains retinoic acid or retinoids stop using it throughout their pregnancy. But low amounts of vitamin A are also bad for fetal development. Our body just does this fantastic job at regulating our intake and metabolism of everything that we put in our body to keep it functional and healthy. And we often talk about the brain as though it's the king organ, but in reality, we can't ignore that all of our organs and all of our system, they are in fact so intertwined and interconnected and they interact so much just to keep us alive. That's so neat. And yeah, there definitely are so many components involved in all of this. It really highlights the transition from thinking about our body as all these separate systems to a more interconnected, larger system. And the brain does not act alone. It's influenced by our immune system, endocrine system, digestive system, and the list goes on. 
And I like that you mentioned metabolism. There is actually an emerging theory that many brain disorders, including mental health issues, all come down to a dysfunction in energy metabolism in our cells. I just started reading about this in the book Brain Energy by Dr. Christopher Palmer from Harvard. It's all pretty fascinating and really makes you question if we're treating these conditions properly. Oh, absolutely. And what's so complicated about this is that all these systems have very dynamic interactions with one another. And, you know, these interactions between systems are quite different between different people. So that complicates it even more. And we know we're clearly missing a portion of the picture that we probably don't even know about yet. You're so right. And I do think just the shortcomings of current treatments, along with increasing rates of mental health prevalence, really show that we're missing something, and it can be helpful to question current treatment standards, even if there's just a small chance we can improve patient quality of life. And this leads into what I chatted with Dr. Wallace about next. So I asked her about how standard medications might be suboptimal and may not be targeting the full spectrum of mechanisms involved in mental health. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that it's more than just the gut-brain axis because I feel like a lot of times in the media, we just think of, oh, it's the gut and the brain and they're connected, but it's so much more complicated than that. Inflammation plays a role, short-chain fatty acids play a role. And I think it's such an interesting and complicated mechanism that sort of mediates the relationship between eating and mood, but it also kind of makes me wonder, we're using all these standard medications for depression and anxiety and other mood disorders that do act on neurotransmitter systems, but not always like the immune system and short-chain fatty acids and all these things that the gut-brain connection is involved with. So do you think this means that dietary interventions that consider the gut-brain connection could be better than these standard medications that just influence neurotransmitters? So I'll start by saying there is absolutely no doubt that standard pharmacotherapy is a massively useful and safe tool in our toolbox for mental illness for some people. Standard first-line pharmacotherapies like SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and SNRIs, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, essentially directly target monoamine transmission in the brain. Monoamines being neurotransmitters in the brain that are crucial for mood regulation, like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. And again, while there's no doubt that this standard pharmacotherapy is again, very useful, very safe, can be effective for some people, they're not effective in about 30% of patients. And they often produce intolerable side effects, as well as having certain populations that they are not recommended for. So how I like to think about it is that we have psychotherapy, we have our standard pharmacotherapies, and we know that the most effective way to treat mental illness is by using those in combination. Mm -hmm. psychotherapy with pharmacotherapy. Now, adding just another tool in our toolbox, these nutritional psychiatry interventions, it just adds another option to our toolbox. So I also want to mention that, you know, mental illness is such an individualized experience in terms Mm -hmm. of 
of symptomatology, in terms of treatment response. So what works for one person may not work for another person. So, you know, it's really about adding more tools to our toolbox. I know I sound like a broken record, Mm -hmm. but there are definitely some advantages that nutritional psychiatry interventions have over our standard pharmacotherapies. So while our standard pharmacotherapies directly target monoamine transmission in the brain, again, they come along with, you know, a slew of issues. Nutritional psychiatry interventions target the various pathways of the gut-brain axis to then theoretically alter neurotransmission. And what's even better about these is that they also have the potential to be used as both preventative and treatment tools. So going back to the gut-brain axis, we know that dietary intake is the single most important modulator of the composition and the activity of the gut bacteria. We also know that the gut bacteria influence key inflammatory processes like pro-inflammatory cytokine expression. We also know that pro-inflammatory cytokine expression can alter neurotransmission in the brain, and these alterations can affect our mental health status. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we are theorizing that nutritional psychiatry interventions are affecting our mental health status Mm -hmm. in a way that's different and in some aspects superior to standard pharmacotherapy. But again, we are not discounting the utility of standard pharmacotherapy for sure. It's really interesting to me that she talks about inflammation quite a bit because we actually know that in obesity, the increase in fatty tissue actually promotes a pro-inflammatory state that's associated with an increase in the risk of various cancers. And on top of that, there's actually pretty solid evidence that some of these cytokines are actually elevated in cancer patients who are also diagnosed with major depression as compared to cancer patients without depression. So yeah, I definitely agree with the idea that it's important to combine all of these different tools that we have and not just rely on one. Inflammation seems to be a key factor in how diet impacts mental health. And if other conditions like obesity or certain cancers increase inflammation, then it makes sense that mental health issues like depression would be associated with that as well. And I like that she mentioned that nutritional interventions are just another tool in the toolbox, and especially for people where those standard treatments aren't working fully or for people with complex cases involving multiple conditions. Yeah, for sure. Let's get back to the interview. Sure. Yeah. I think sometimes in the media, people say like, oh, like I ditched my antidepressants and I'm just using my lifestyle to like cure everything. And that can be kind of dangerous because people do rely on these medications to help their life quality. And you definitely don't want to change anything without consulting your physician. So I do want to include that as well. Absolutely. And it's also really important to note that much of the research right now is not actually looking at nutritional psychiatry interventions in isolation. There's a huge line of research looking into that, but we're also looking at these interventions as adjuvant therapies to standard pharmacotherapy. Yeah, no, I think it's really promising that they could work together and I hope to see more of lifestyle incorporated into clinical care as well as pharmacotherapy. And I like that you mentioned before also 
inter-individual differences because everyone is so different in their mental health and their response to standard pharmacotherapies and medications. Is it the same, do you think, with the gut-brain axis? I'm assuming everyone differs in their gut-brain connection as well. Absolutely. Particularly the composition activity of the gut microbiota itself. We know that there are individual differences. We know that there are sex differences. We know that there are differences in the composition of our gut microbiota along the lifespan. So age plays an important factor as well. Geography mm. plays a factor. Physical activity plays a factor. So there's many opportunities for these factors to play into kind of the individual composition of the gut microbiota and again it's downstream effects on the gut brain axis and I think that's really interesting with nutritional interventions is the possibility for more of like a personalized approach to mental health care which I think could be really important and we can talk about like a bit later as well but we did mention like mechanisms and like nutritional psychiatry in general So I wanted to get into some more specifics of like certain nutrients and diets and get your opinion on, is there really any sufficient evidence out there to suggest like a beneficial effect of specific like macronutrient groups or micronutrients for mental health? Before we get to the answer to this question, I think it's important we describe what macronutrients and micronutrients really are. Everyone has heard the terms but what's the difference between the two? Definitely, so macronutrients refer to fats, carbohydrates, and proteins, while micronutrients refer to smaller things like vitamins and minerals. Some research in the field of nutritional psychiatry suggests that specific micronutrients like omega-3s, folate, B vitamins could have a beneficial action on mental health. And then there's other research which is more focused on the macronutrients or how diets specifically high in fats or low in carbohydrates might help mental health. Thanks, Elena. Let's see what Dr. Wallace has to say about their potential role in mental health. Yeah, that's a great question. So when this field really kind of started emerging and developing, this was in kind of the early 2000s, much of the research focused on single nutrient interventions, macronutrients like polyunsaturated fatty acids, micronutrients like vitamin D. But with the advancement of You know, research and technology in recent years, a lot of this research has developed to include microbiota targeting supplements like probiotics and prebiotics, for instance. So they're all working in different ways. There's no magical food that you are going to eat for a week and it's going to improve your mental health. There's not one magical food that you're going to eat for a lifetime that's going to improve your mental health. What I would say is we know that inflammation plays a big role in the gut-brain axis and in mental health. So following a diet that has anti-inflammatory properties, full of anti-inflammatory foods, I think that would be the best recommendation at this point. And that includes diets like, and I know this kind of gets into your further questions, like the Mediterranean diet, for instance. So the Mediterranean diet is probably the most studied diet in the context of mental health and mental illness right now. I should say in the context of mood disorders, so depression and anxiety. There was a seminal study out of some colleagues from Australia doing the SMILES trial, you may have heard of it, and they found evidence 
means that a Mediterranean diet essentially performed better than a, a social support control group when examining symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. So we know that the Mediterranean diet is a good candidate for a dietary pattern that can improve or maintain mental health status. And the Mediterranean diet is, as you would expect, full of these anti-inflammatory types of foods and nutrients that previously we were researching in isolation. So it involves, you know, lots of fresh produce, lean proteins, healthy fats, kind of along those lines. And I know that there's a lot of research being done on the ketogenic diet as well. I am not as well versed in the ketogenic diet for mood disorders. We know that the ketogenic diet has, you know, an effect on the brain. We've seen it work very well for neurological issues like epilepsy. In terms of mood and anxiety disorders, I have to admit I am a little bit more skeptical But the reality is is that we just need more research. There's also the DASH and the MIND diets. So we'll start with the DASH diet. The DASH, D-A-S-H, that stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. This diet suggests specific servings of recommended foods based on a daily calorie level and limiting fats and sugars. It is originally meant to target high blood pressure. Um, It's been found to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. And research is now suggesting that adherence to this diet may also reduce incidence of depression, again, in part due to its anti-inflammatory capabilities. And then we have the MIND diet, which is the Mediterranean DASH diet intervention for neurodegenerative delay. As you can imagine, based on the title, it incorporates aspects from both diets, from both the Mediterranean and the DASH diet. And as indicated, it was intended to target neurodegeneration and the aging brain. So it's rich in certain vitamins, carotenoids, flavonoids that are theorized to protect the brain by reducing oxidative stress and inflammation. And evidence suggests that this diet helps to prevent cognitive decline, and it's now being explored in the context of depression and other psychological disorders as well. So the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, the MIND diet, they're all very similar. They have very similar anti-inflammatory properties. They are full of nutrients, vitamins, microbiota targeting agents like probiotics that influence inflammation, that influence the gut-brain axis. So those are the diets that are currently, I would say, front runners. Okay, wait, so many diets. She mentioned oxidative stress and anti-inflammatory properties a lot. We've touched on those earlier in the context of obesity and cancer prevalence, but do we know why these things would help mental health disorders, especially mood-related ones? Yeah, it's really interesting. So research suggests that the immune system is actually quite tied with mental well-being, and a lot of research indicates an association between increased inflammation and increased risk of mental illness. 
It's basically known that an imbalance between states of pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory action can have detrimental consequences on brain health and therefore mental health. Pro-inflammatory molecules will bind to what's known as death receptors on neurons and, you guessed it, cause increased cell death. This has been shown in individuals with mental illness in which there's increased brain cell death in mood disorder patients with each recurrent episode. So over time, it leads to reduced brain volumes in things like the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, among other areas. That does make a lot of sense. And, you know, in the case of oxidative stress, it is a, a similar process. We know it's very much linked to some disorders like Parkinson's, where it's thought and pretty well supported that oxidative stress is the basis of neurodegeneration of dopaminergic neurons, which is directly linked to the motor impairments that are the, you know, cardinal features of Parkinson's. But do we know how that works, if not in Parkinson's at least just generally speaking? I'm not an expert in Parkinson's, but let's start with the fact that oxidative stress refers to an imbalance between things known as pro-oxidants and antioxidants, which leads to an increased number of free radicals in the brain. And free radicals are basically these molecules that cause damage to our lipids, proteins, carbohydrates, and even DNA in the body. So increased oxidative stress means increased damage to our brain. One meta-analysis I found showed that markers of oxidative stress were increased in people with bipolar disorder when compared to those without mental illness. To support this association even further, antioxidants com compounds have been shown to be useful in treatment, and gold standard medications like lithium have even been shown to have an antioxidant effect. So this could all be why nutritional interventions that have an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory action could be so beneficial for mental health. Right. One thing that's interesting to me is that lithium, just because you used that example, is actually used a lot for mood disorders and for mania, bipolar disorders, you know, that kind of stuff. And my understanding was that it mainly played a role in inhibitory neurotransmission, which is really interesting to me now hearing that some of its effects might actually be due to its antioxidant properties. Anyways, back to the interview. Thank you. Thank you for running us through all those diets and breaking them down for us. I know that when there's a study on one of those, sometimes it can blow up in the media and it gets a bit sensationalized or romanticized. But obviously, like you said, more research is needed. So what is missing in the current clinical trials? Just to give our listeners sort of some insight into like levels of evidence and what is considered solid enough evidence to implement in like all of our daily lives. Essentially, the gold standard of clinical trials and clinical research in this field are double-blind randomized control trials. So this means that we have two groups. We are giving one group the intervention. We are giving the other group essentially a sham intervention, and we are comparing them over time to see if they improve. Both groups are unaware of whether they are getting the intervention or not, as well as the researcher. The study team members are also unaware, and that's to reduce bias, of course. Mm -hmm. And then to go even further than that, what we can do with those kind of gold standard double-blind randomized control trials is 
have a meta-analysis of these randomized controlled trials, which is a large statistical review of the trials that are out there that can really give us kind of clear-cut answers to whether there is an effect here. Mm-hmm. Now, currently, there simply isn't enough of these double-blind randomized control trials to be able to draw clear conclusions. It's something that, you know, we really need to be refining and replicating in the field before these conclusions are really drawn out. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the field right now, there's a lot of mixed results. Unfortunately, it's due to a lot of heterogeneity in the studies. So looking at different patient characteristics within the study, we're looking at different strains of probiotics, for instance, we're looking at, you know, different geographical areas, there's many variables that contribute to large differences in these studies that make it difficult to compare, and maybe contributing to why one study finds a positive result and one study finds a null result. Research is so complex and the heterogeneity between studies is a problem in many fields. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's actually fundamentally important to research, even though it makes it harder to compare results. When you design a study, the whole purpose is to build on information that you already have. So you're basically taking a pre-existing study and you're tailoring it to your needs. If the methodology was the same in all the studies, we would just be replicating results that already exist. And that's not only counterproductive, unless there's a good reason for it, of course, but it's also really hard to justify to funding agencies. It definitely makes it hard to compare different studies to one another. And ideally, methodology would be described in great precision when a research article is published. So this can actually help to tease out if some inconsistencies are due to methodology or not. And I think there's a really good push right now towards this. That's a good point. And I do think there is value in unique study designs. This is how we learn new things, what can be done and how new discoveries can be made. Another challenge that I also asked Dr. Wallace about is the problem of blinding. We talked about this in our previous episode, but basically in the gold standard clinical trials, participants are assigned randomly to one of two groups, either the group getting the new intervention or the group getting the standard treatment without knowing which group they're assigned, which basically allows for the intervention to be fully tested without the influence of any expectancy biases. So let's get back into this part of the interview. And I think also another challenge that I imagine in nutritional psychiatry is it can be hard to blind someone to their diet or like what they're eating? Like, how do you find studies like go about that? How do you stop someone from realizing which diet they're on? Yeah, it's very difficult. Many of the whole diet intervention studies aren't completely blinded because it's very difficult to accomplish that. But for instance, when we're looking at, you know, single supplementation, like a probiotic study, it's very easy to blind participants to that. So yeah, that's certainly a consideration in the whole diet intervention studies. But research teams are coming up with very interesting ways to incorporate that into their methodology, for sure. Very cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see how they do that. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely you've highlighted that we can't believe everything we read online. And the research is being done. And it's 
promising, but ultimately more is needed to overcome these methodological challenges and just have more data on the topic. So yeah, I think that's an important point. And based on the evidence that's out there so far for a role of diet on mental health and the gut-brain axis as well, is this research being applied in clinical practice yet? Or is dietary assessment a part of mental health assessment? Or how is it being incorporated yet, if at all? Currently, no. Dietary assessment is not a standard. There's no guidelines to dietary assessments in mental health treatment. But it's interesting that you bring this up because this is actually something that we currently have very limited knowledge of. And we're actually launching a study next month evaluating primary care physicians and psychiatrists' perceptions of the field of nutritional psychiatry in Canada and examining how and if they are open to the field of nutritional psychiatry, to learning about it, to being educated about it, to whether they are currently implementing any sort of dietary recommendations, whether they're asking their patients seeking mental health treatment about their diet. So this is a 15-question survey that will be distributed to physicians across Canada next month. And hopefully, we will be able to kind of better understand their perceptions of the field and whether they are currently employing any nutritional psychiatry approaches in their clinical practice currently and whether they're open to it in the future once they've received more education or training about the field and how they'd like to receive that as well. I love that Dr. Wallace is assessing physician perspectives on nutritional psychiatry. We talked in our last episode about the lack of physician education on nutrition, let alone on how nutrition can be used for mental health. It could really help pinpoint how we could increase awareness where most people get their medical information. Yeah, it's really important work, and I'm really excited to see what practicing physicians think of the field and sort of the current state of practice. We did chat a bit about the education gap for medical students on the topic, so here's what Dr. Wallace had to say about that. Yeah, and I think one of the main barriers to that is their education and training. You know, in the nutrition education that, for instance, a psychiatry resident receives is very minimal, and there's no specific training or education specifically related to nutritional psychiatry currently in Canadian medical schools. So it'll be very interesting to see whether physicians are seeking out this knowledge on their own, from where they're seeking this knowledge, whether they are implementing these approaches that they're learning on their own into their practice, and how they would better like to learn about these topics. Wow, that's great. And I want to dive into a bit more of what you're specifically working on in your research. So you've mentioned this survey that'll go out, which is really interesting. What other projects do you have on the go at the moment? Yeah, so my primary research focus is how dietary patterns and nutritional status influence mood and anxiety disorders like depression. And currently, I'm actually studying this in the context of the perinatal period. The perinatal period is fascinating to me because 
It's characterized by these significant psychosocial and biophysiological changes, including shifts along the gut-brain axis to essentially prepare the body for what it's undergoing or about to undergo. Mm-hmm. But any disruptions along this axis can put women at risk for postpartum mental health disturbances like depression and anxiety. And, you know, we know that in Canada, it's estimated that up to 18% of women experience postpartum depression, anxiety symptoms, which often lead to negative health and developmental outcomes for both the mother and the child. So again, while there are pharmacological treatments available, again, between the lack of efficacy, the intolerable side effects, as well as the fact that many pregnant and breastfeeding women are reluctant to use pharmacotherapy during the perinatal period, many physicians are also reluctant to keep prescribing during the perinatal period. So these women are falling through the cracks. So this really highlights the need for novel and effective strategies to maintain mental health during the perinatal period. Mm -hmm. So um, to kind of fill in some of these gaps, we have designed a prospective cohort study that will examine the dietary patterns, mental health symptoms, and peripheral gut microbiota and immune biomarkers of approximately 100 women during the perinatal period. Because research, again, has established that our gut microbiome influences our mental health through the gut-brain axis. One way that we can manipulate our gut microbiome and its downstream effects is through our diet. So this has been suggested as a potential target for both prevention and treatment of mental health disturbances, of course. But this may be of particular use for perinatal populations because of their unique kind of biophysiological status. So the objective of this study is to identify dietary patterns during the prenatal period that are protective against postpartum mental health disturbances, and also to identify gut microbiota and inflammatory-based peripheral biomarkers that might predict a diet-related postpartum mental health status. Mm-hmm. So we've only just begun recruiting for this study. We expect to be recruiting for another year or so. So if there are any pregnant listeners in the Ottawa Gatineau area, we'd love to have you be a part of the study. What we expect to find from this study is that better diet quality during the prenatal period will be associated with less severe depressive and anxiety symptoms during the postpartum period. And we also anticipate that specific gut microbiota and circulating inflammatory status will modulate these associations. Such an understudied and vulnerable population. It's such an important subject to look into, really. Yes, and especially like she said, it impacts not just the mother, but also the baby. So very important work. I'm so interested to see how nutritional interventions could be used in the perinatal period. And for anyone interested in participating, I asked Dr. Wallace how you can reach her. Yeah, absolutely. So you can contact me by email, caroline.wallace at uottawa.ca. 
I'm doing this research under the supervision of my fantastic postdoctoral supervisor, Dr. Mary-Claude O'Day at the University of Ottawa. It does require coming into the site for brief clinic visits. And again, we are at the University of Ottawa, so you do have to be local to Ottawa or at least in the area and willing to travel to my office. But we would certainly love to have any listeners expecting to take part in the study for sure. And beyond um, what you're looking at specifically in the perinatal period and the gut-brain axis, more genuinely speaking, what do you think in terms of research that still needs to be done in nutritional psychiatry to make its way into clinical care? What do you predict will be sort of one of the most significant outcomes from the field over the next sort of few decades? I know it's hard to predict the future, but I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, what is really needed right now in order to take this from essentially bench to bedside, we say, is refining and replicating scientifically rigorous intervention studies. What I hope to see from this is that I hope to see the evidence used to develop dietary recommendations and guidelines and potential interventions that, you know, are accessible non-invasive, and again, have potential to play a role in both prevention and treatment. And Dr. Wallace also gave some great information on misinformation out there and just take-home messages for people that may not be experiencing a mental health issue, but just want to improve their quality of life or prevent illness. Mm, Let's hear it. Absolutely. Nutritional psychiatry is a field that is unfortunately sensationalized Mm -hmm. in the media all the time. And while there's so much potential, there is not one superfood, there is not one magical food that is going to improve your mental health or your physical health at any rate. It's about lifestyle and patterns. You know, I've even seen this in my probiotic work. The first trial that we did was really looking at probiotic supplementation in isolation. And we didn't see any significant results from that in our double-blind randomized control trial. And part of that, again, maybe because it's not going to be some magic pill. You know, it has the potential to improve your mental health, but it needs to be working, you know, in and amongst a healthy diet. So I would just say that if you see a headline on the internet saying that, you know, eating a cup of kale a day is going to cure your mental illness, I would go into that with a skeptical mind. It's so nice to hear that from someone who's researching in the field, to remember to stay skeptical of what you see online, and to try as much as possible to look into reliable sources. It's such a refreshing perspective from all the junk that we see online and in the media. There is no magic pill. It's all about patterns. Totally. And we love the honesty and realness that comes from not sensationalizing research findings and communicating them as accurately as possible. It's all about balance and finding what works for you as an individual. We always like to say, and the name of our podcast is to think twice about what you see online. (laughs) So awesome. And lastly, any advice for any early career researchers or students that are interested in pursuing the field? What would you advise people to do? My first piece of advice would be to get involved. And one way that you can do this is 
by joining the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, or ISNPR. So ISNPR was originally formed by some researchers and wonderful colleagues out of Deakin University in Australia, but now years later has an executive committee and members from research institutions all over the world, like myself, and includes clinicians and researchers who are involved in really the most rigorous nutritional psychiatry research. We actually just had our biennial international conference in March in Cairns, Australia, but we also hold regular webinars, virtual networking events. We send out a quarterly newsletter to help you keep up to date with kind of the most recent nutritional psychiatry research and related events and conferences. So definitely check out our website, but also follow us on Twitter at underscore ISNPR or ISNPR.org because this is a source of information that of course we always encourage everyone to think twice about but this is a source of information that is a very rigorous and evidence-based source of nutritional psychiatry research so you can trust what comes out of the ISNPR so definitely check us out there and become involved and yeah the field is ever growing so yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for joining me, Dr. Wallace. This has been an absolute pleasure. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you, Elena and Dr. Wallace, for your lovely conversation on the gut-brain axis and on nutritional psychiatry. That concludes our discussion today. As always, we appreciate your support, and if you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality evidence-based episodes, you can check out our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee pages linked in the episode description and found on our link tree in our Instagram bio. These are both easy-to-use platforms where you can donate to our volunteer-based initiative. No matter how much or how little you decide to share with us, we really appreciate your generosity. If you can't contribute financially and you're a part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. Also, if you're currently researching the brain and would like to share your research with us, feel free to reach out. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join our team. No previous podcast experience needed. You can just DM us on social media or shoot us an email at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. On that note, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice and see you next time.